Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Luke chapter 21, discussing the Olivet Discourse. Now in our previous audio, we discussed the persecution, the betrayal, the false prophets, the lawlessness, 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 the end of the age, and so forth, that was going to happen in this 40-year run-up to AD 70. And in this particular audio, Luke mentions the abomination of desolation. He's going to mention what I call the great escape to Pella, the Christians fleeing the city. And he also mentions days of vengeance. Now, Luke just does that in a few verses, verses 20 through 24. That's just five verses. But I've got a whole lot of stuff in Matthew because Matthew goes into much greater detail about the abomination of desolation, the escape to Pella, and and so forth. And so I'm going to splice in two audios from Matthew. It's going to be kind of long to cover these five verses, but Matthew just goes into much greater detail than Luke does. So the first splice concerning the abomination of desolation and the great escape to Pella, the discussion in Matthew, covering Matthew verses 15 through 20, that splice begins now. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew 24, right in the middle of the Olivet Discourse. We're going to start with verse 15. In the last audio, in the previous verses, we talked about false prophets and false messiahs and lawlessness and the things that will occur at the end. Not the end of the world. It's not the end of the world, but the end of the Jewish order. Jesus is picking up on that theme to talk about the events that are going to lead to the ultimate downfall of Jerusalem. He's trying to warn his disciples about what will happen. So starting in verse 15, we're going to talk about the abomination of desolation. I'm going to finish that in this audio, and if we have time, we will talk about the great tribulation. I'm not sure we're going to get there. So we'll start with verse 15. So when you see the abomination that causes desolation, Jesus says, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So here's the famous abomination that causes desolation. Now, the phrase comes from Daniel. It appears in three scriptures in Daniel, two of which refer to AD 70, and one of which refers to Antiochus Epiphanes in the 3rd century B.C. Daniel 9.27, this is referring to AD 70. He will make a firm covenant with many. That's Jesus will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. That's when he gets crucified and no longer necessary to offer sacrifices and offering because he is the ultimate sacrifice and offering. All right. Then it says, In the abomination of desolation will be a wing of the temple, will be on a wing of the temple, and that doesn't make any sense, until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Now, the, the Hebrew here is totally chaotic, as anybody, any scholar will tell you when he tries to translate that. Basically, what this is talking about is the Roman armies coming into Jerusalem and wiping it out. This is what John Gill says the reference is to. Adam Clark says, and I agree, that's just what he's talking about. So Jesus is picking up on that same abomination of desolation. Now, Daniel in Daniel 11.31 does mention another abomination of desolation. This is the one referring to Antiochus Epiphanes, where he says in Daniel 11.31, his forces will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress. They will abolish the daily sacrifice and set up the abomination of desolation, which is exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes did. He set up an altar to Zeus in the temple, and he put a sacrifice to pig on it, if I recall correctly. Also, killed a lot of Jews, too, in one of his trips to Israel. I think he took two trips. I think it's, the scholars disagree on how many trips he took to Israel, but every time he was there, it was a mess. It was bad news for the Jews, all right? 
But that's not the abomination of desolation that Jesus is talking about in the Olivet Discourse. He's talking about AD 70. And so was Daniel in Daniel 12:11. From the time the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Now, I'm not going to get into what that is. That's a very difficult passage. I, I take my best shot at explaining in a video I've got in my series on Orthodox Preterism. You can look that up on YouTube if you're interested in these verses in Daniel. But anyway, we're just going to summarize all that to make it simple and say that Jesus is talking about an abomination of desolation that occurs right around AD 70. What is it? Well, there's some options as to what Jesus meant. The first option is the option I take and which John Gill takes and which Adam Clark takes. The abomination which causes desolation is the Roman army. It can be in the Holy Land as well as the Holy Place. So if you take the Roman army as being an abomination because of all of its idolatrous standards, it comes into Israel, it stands on the Holy Land, and it causes desolation by destroying all the cities and ultimately destroying Jerusalem in the Holy Land. So the Roman army is the abomination that causes desolation. Again, this is not a unique opinion. John Gill, Adam Clark hold to that view. The way you get that view is by looking at Luke chapter 21, verse 20, in the parallel version of the Olivet Discourse. Jesus says this, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come near. Now, in Luke, he doesn't say abomination of desolation, but he does use the word desolation. And he ties that desolation with Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. Now, of course, an army was considered abominable because of the Roman God's images on incense there. Abomination is something that is uh, is idolatrous, basically, causing moral pollution and spiritual pollution by idolatry, and that's what the Roman armies did with their idolatrous eagles when they came into the land. So I think that's very clear when you compare the two. Matthew, Jesus says, abomination that causes desolation, and Luke, he says, Jerusalem is surrounded by armies that recognize that its desolation has come near. Especially when you consider that's exactly what happened, as I think I have mentioned in the previous audio. I'll mention it again. Cestius Gallus shows up. He was the Roman general that was charged with besieging Jerusalem. He unexpectedly and inexplicably withdrew from the city, retreated to the north. The zealots in the city of Jerusalem ran out the gates. They chased the army and actually beat Cestius in a battle. And while all that was going on, the Christians in Jerusalem, when they saw that they had been encircled by the armies that caused desolation, when they saw the abomination that causes desolation, when they saw the Roman armies, at first they said, how are we supposed to flee like Jesus said? And then when the Cestius withdrew, then they say, ah, oh, that's how we flee, because now there's nobody stopping us. And they did. They, they fled the city, every Christian, according to Eusebius of Caesarea, Every Christian left the city, fled northwest, crossed the Jordan River to Pella, where they were safe during the remainder of the Jewish War. Now, there's some other options. This is a controversial passage, so let me just give you some other options. Some people say it is a statue placed in the temple by the Romans, but the problem with that is, is what has that got to do with fleeing? By the time the Romans got to the temple, they destroyed the city. There was no way anybody could flee. They were already, they would already be captured. Some people say it's the golden eagle Herod set on the temple gate. John Gill denies this because that was before Christ spoke the words. When you see the abomination of desolation flee, the golden eagle was set up before Jesus even spoke. Some people say it could be an image of Tiberius Caesar, which Pilate is said to have brought into the temple. Gill denies that too because the timing of this was just about the time that Jesus spoke, which is too soon. Jesus spoke in 8030. Jesus is predicting events in the future. 
Some people say it's the destruction of Jerusalem itself. When you see the abomination which causes desolation, i.e. Jerusalem, when you see it, when you see it, when you see it destroyed, in other words, when you see it desolate, then flee. But the problem with that is it'd be too late because if you were still in the city, you'd be cooked. So I don't think those offices are anywhere close to fulfilling it. I think that Gill and Clark are exactly right. It's referring to the Roman army that causes desolation. Now, when Jesus is talking about this abomination of desolations, he's referring to you. He says, so when you see the abomination that causes desolation, he's talking to four disciples, remember? Now, here is a case where I think if you get carried away by the audience relevance that arguments that Orthodox preterists like to use, that you can get too carried away by that because of those four disciples, how many of them were going to be in Jerusalem when in AD 66, I think it was, when Cestius Gallus showed up to see the Roman army surround Jerusalem? Probably none of them. So he's referring to you Christians who were around in Jerusalem at the time, referring to the disciples standing for the Christians. When you Christians see the abomination that caused desolation, it's not when you, James, Peter, John, and Andrew, see the abomination that causes desolation. So I point that out so that preterists don't get too excited about that audience relevance. It can't mean his apostles in general. Many of them would be dead by eighty seventy, or they might be in other countries preaching the gospel, as John Gill points out. So, But what he means is all the disciples who would be in Jerusalem to see what was happening. Now, again, as I mentioned, the abomination of desolation stands in the holy place. That means, it, it, it makes one want to think it means the holy place in the temple. But now, the Greek term used here is not the typical Greek term that's used for the holy place in the temple. Remember, the holy place is the 20 by 10 cubit place where the showbread and the lampstand and the golden altar of incense were, right in front of the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. The holy place is a, is a there's a technical word for that. It's called hagion. But in Matthew 24:15, our verse that we're just talking about where the abomination of desolation will be, it says, in topo hagio, in the holy place. So that means it's an actual place, which means the Roman land, excuse me, the, the Jewish land. It's not, a, it's not a technical term for the holy place in the temple. Now, here's another option as to what holy place is besides the, the land of Jerusalem or the place of Jerusalem is the temple itself, because, as Josephus points out, the Romans brought their incense into the temple and placed them over against the eastern gate and sacrificed them to there. But there's a problem with that. If that was to be a sign to the Christians who escaped to Pella, how could that happen after the temple's already destroyed and conquered by the Romans? Now, there's some way you can rescue that option. There's a way you can say when you see the abomination which causes desolation, it means when you see the army surrounding the city, it doesn't mean that desolation happened right then. You see the army, you leave, and then the desolation happened later, which would be the incense in the temple, the idolatrous eagles in the temple. That's a possibility, but I think it's just much easier to say that when you see the Jerusalem army, which causes desolation, and it's an abomination because of its idolatry, get out of Dodge, leave Jerusalem, and flee. Makes a lot of sense to me. Side note here, in this verse, Jesus mentions the abomination that causes desolation. He says it is spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Jesus calls Daniel a prophet, and of course liberals, liberal Protestants who are enamored with the JEDP documentary hypothesis, who say that Daniel was not a prophet. They say that Daniel was not a prophet, that he was an historian who pretended to be a prophet. In other words, he's a sham, a liar, and a fraud. 
that he was writing after the events that he prophesied of, which completely takes the charm of Daniel away. Because when you read, like, for especially in Daniel 11 about the king of the north and the king of the south, and you see where all those events just track perfectly the six Syrian wars, so much so that liberals say, well, he, could, he couldn't have done that because of their, their naturalistic presuppositions. But if you take Daniel for who he was, prophesying before the event, it's a remarkable prophecy. All of the prophets are remarkable, especially chapter 11, in my opinion. But Jesus calls Daniel a prophet. I'd much rather respect Jesus' opinion than liberals. I respect Jesus a lot more than I do liberals. I cannot tell you what I think about liberals. This is a family audio. Now, why did Matthew or Jesus say, let the reader understand? It's not clear whether Jesus, where Matthew's quoting Jesus or whether he's just adding a parenthetical remark. The Holman Christian Study Bible puts the quotes at the end of Holy Place, and then the parentheses are outside of the quotes, thus making Matthew the author of that statement, let the reader understand. And I think what Matthew is trying to say, if if that is correct, if the Holman Christian Study Bible is correct, Matthew is trying to say, look, you need to understand. You need to understand when you see this abomination, these Roman armies surrounding the city, you need to get out of Dodge. You need to flee because your life is at stake. So it's important that you understand. Let him understand. This is more than just an ordinary, you ought to understand the scripture. This is, this, your life is dependent on this. You understand what you're talking, what Jesus was talking about when he talked about the abomination of desolation. Let's go to Matthew 24, verse 16. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. This is talking about the Transjordan Mountains. Pella, of course, is right across the Jordan River. Jesus tells the people, the Christian Jews in Jerusalem, to flee to those mountains. They did that. Eusebius of Caesarea, the famous early church historian, tells us that. Here's a quote from Gill. Eusebius and Epiphanius, and I don't know Epiphanius, early source. I don't know him, but I know Eusebius of Caesarea. They say that at this juncture, after Cestius Gallus had raised the siege, and Vespasian was approaching with his army, all who believed in Christ left Jerusalem and fled to Pella and other places beyond the river Jordan. And so they all marvelously escaped the general shipwreck of their country. Not one of them perished. An amazing thing. The reason they did that is because Jesus had warned them in advance. Josephus tells us this story. The Roman, when the Roman army under Cestius Gallus surrounded Jerusalem, then he left without any visible cause. The Christians fled. This, of course, would have been counterintuitive to all Jews who saw this situation. Because if you see an army coming, you, your tendency is to go into a city to get protection. But the Christians left the city. They fled the city rather than going in. And there were a lot of Jews coming into the city for the Passover, which, of course, just made them sheep full of slaughter when the city finally fell. But the Christians went against the stream as all the Jews were going into the city. The Christian Jews were heading out of the city because of they listened to their Lord and they didn't do what everybody else was doing. The application of that ought to be obvious. Parallel passage in Luke 21, 21 says, Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those inside the city must leave it. And those who are in the country must not enter it. Luke adds a little extra detail there. Not only... Christians inside the city must leave, but also Christians outside the city. Don't go into that city during that Passover feast. Don't go in there because the city is going down. Now notice that this warning was to those in Judea. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those in, Ju in Judea must flee to the mountains. Of course, futurists who try to make this an end of the world cataclysm should have to explain to me why would just people in Judea be in fleet to the mountains when there's a worldwide apocalyptic battle going on involving the Antichrist? Those in Judea flee to the mountains? How about those in South Carolina? Well, let's talk about this 
event when the Jewish Christians fled Jerusalem right before the Jewish war. It was in 66 AD, if my memory serves me correctly. Here's the quote from Josephus, as recited to us by Adam Clark. In the twelfth year of Nero, Cestius Gallus, the president of Syria, came against Jerusalem with a powerful army. He might, says Josephus, have assaulted and taken the city and thereby put an end to the war. But without any just reason, and contrary to the expectation of all, he raised the siege and departed. Josephus remarks that after Cestius Gallus had raised the siege, many of the principal Jewish people, Poiloitoin, I don't need to read the, the Greek there, many of the principal Jewish people forsook the city as men do a sinking ship. Vespasian was deputed in the room of Cestius Gallus in the place of Cestius Gallus, who, having subdued all the country, prepared to besiege Jerusalem and invested it on every side. But the news of Nero's death and soon after that of Galba and the disturbances that followed, that's the year of the four emperors, and the civil wars between Otho and Vitellius held Vespasian and his son Titus in suspense. Thus the city was not actually besieged and informed until after Vespasian was confirmed in the empire and Titus was appointed to command the forces in Judea. It was in those incidental delays that the Christians, and indeed several others, provided for their own safety by flight. So it was not only Cestius Gallus's retreat, but also the fact that Vespasian didn't renew the siege quickly because he was waiting for the settlement of the civil wars in Rome. And so he was distracted, and the Christians got out. Let's talk about the providence of God. In Luke 19.43, our Lord says of Jerusalem, Thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, encompass thee round, and keep thee on every, in on every side. Accordingly, Titus, having made several assaults without success, resolved to surround the city with a wall, which was, with incredible speed, completed in three days. The wall was 39 furlongs in length and was strengthened with 13 forts at proper distances so that all hope of safety was cut off, none could make his escape from the city, and no provisions could be brought into it. So you see, Jesus' predictions were fulfilled perfectly. He was a prophet. Matthew 24, verse 17, a man on the housetop must not come down to get things out of his house. Jewish houses back then had flat roofs, and they were approachable by, the roofs were approachable by stairs on the outside, and they also had an inner stairway. And so what he's saying is if you're on your housetop and all of a sudden you see this army that causes desolation, you see it disappear, you see it coming, get ready to, don't waste time going down in your house and packing. Get out of Dodge. Leave quick. People would sit on their housetops for devotion or recreation, so they spent a lot of time up there. So this is a, 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 once you understand the culture of this, it makes sense that a man would be on his housetop. You might read this from a Western point of view and say, well, what would a man be on his housetop for? Fixing his roof? No. They would sit up there to relax, kind of like they do in New York City on the top of apartment houses. No time to relax when Jesus came back in judgment. It's time to get outside. And where you think, well, how can you flee if you don't have to go down to get things out of your house? Because the roofs adjoined each other. They formed terraces from one end of the city to the other, according to Adam Clark. One could walk on the housetops all the way out of the city without ever coming down. So that makes perfect sense. If you take this in a futurist global sense, Great Tribulation, a man on his housetop, you know, most housetops in most places in the world are not flat. So it kind of doesn't really make a lot of sense. Matthew 24, verse 18, and a man in the field must not go back to get his clothes. Now, of course, all of this is talking about the importance of getting out of Jerusalem quickly before Vespasian and Titus had time to get their act together and start that siege up again. Don't hang around and say, well, there's no army out there. I think I'll just lollygag around. No, get out. Now, don't, don't take time. Why would a man in the field be tempted to go back and get his clothes? What does that mean? Well, because 
it sounds like he's working without his clothes, like he's nude or something. He goes back and gets his clothes. It doesn't make any sense. Well, it's because they would, the people back then, when they were working in the fields, they would strip themselves of their outer garments down to their shirts, and then they would lay their outer garments on the corner of the field. This is according to John Gill. So what Jesus is saying is don't go running back into the field to get your clothes. Just leave with the shirt that you have on your back without getting your outer garment. He doesn't mean don't go back into your house to get your clothes. It means don't go back into the field to get your clothes. Verse 19 of Matthew 24, Jesus continues, Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Why did he say that? By the way, he's not pronouncing a curse on them like he was saying, Woe to you Pharisees, the eight woes in Matthew 23. No, no, no. This is, this is an expression of sympathy. This is going to be bad for pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days because it's hard for pregnant women to run and they have to flee. And nursing mothers, it's likewise hard to run. You've got to carry a baby with you. In the parallel passage in Luke chapter 21, verse 22, Luke says this, because these are days of vengeance to fulfill all the things that are written. In verse 23, Luke says, Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. So we see a few extra details here. Jesus called this days of vengeance. That means vengeance is mine, says the Lord. God is punishing the Jews for murdering the Messiah. And again, when I say the Jews, I mean the Jewish leaders at that time, not all throughout history. We don't want to be involved in anti-Semitism with the Catholic Church and all that kind of stuff. We're talking about back then, the Jewish leaders killed Jesus, and there's no getting around that. And and God said that was vengeance. Now, if all these anti the so called these dispensationalists and anti replacement theologians are always complaining about people who say the church is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies for Israel. That's not anti Semitic, that's Jesus that said that. Days of vengeance on that on that Jewish kingdom. There will be great distress in the land. And of course land is an ex automatic idiomatic expression for Israel, the land case. Luke goes on to say in verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword. That's the people in verse 23. Those people will fall by the edge of the sword in verse 24 and be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now this verse is not in Matthew or Mark, so let's take some time to go over it. As far as captives being led out of Jerusalem after it fell, here's quotes from Josephus. When the city was taken, the most beautiful of the young men were kept for the triumph and those that were above 17 years of age were sent bound into Egypt to labor in the mines. Many were distributed through the provinces to be destroyed in the theaters by the sword or beast. That's the gladiatorial combats. And those that were under 17 years of age were led captive to be sold. And the number of, those, of these only were 97,000. So 97,000 Jews were carried into captivity. Jesus predicted it. He said... They will be led captive into all the nations. So the, Jew, the Romans scattered them all throughout the provinces. That's throughout the, all the nations, through all the ethnic groups, all the tribes of the Roman Empire. Here's another quote from Josephus. Of the youngsters, he picked out the tallest and handsomest to be kept for the triumphal procession. Of the rest, those over 17, were put in irons and sent to hard labor in Egypt. While the great numbers were presented by Titus to the provinces to perish in the theaters by the sword or by wild beasts. Those under 17 were sold. That's a similar quote. One came from Josephus and Eusebius, and one came just from Josephus. The people that died by the sword, by the way, was 1.1 million, according to Josephus and Eusebius. Captives were 97,000, according to the same sources. So what Jesus said in Luke 21, his version of the Olivet Discourse, directly came to pass. Great distress in the land, people falling by the sword. The times of the Gentiles, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, the easiest 
way to interpret that is the time of the Jewish war when the Romans came in and trampled all over Israel. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles. The Gentiles being the Romans, trampled on means being stomped on until, until it's over, until the siege is over and the city is destroyed. That's the easiest way to take that expression. Now, some people say that all this time of the Gentiles is referring to the, the times when the church is predominantly Gentile until the Jews come into the church in Romans chapter 11. I don't believe that. I don't think it has anything to do with the context. I think the times of the Gentiles is the three and a half years of the Jewish war in which Jerusalem was besieged and the cities of Israel were invested, trampled on, and attacked by the Romans. The Jewish war lasted three years, three and a half years, from AD 66 to AD 70. We got in Revelation 11, 1 through 2, a, a reference to the trampling down. Re Revelation 11, 1 through 2, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring reed like a rod with these words, Go and measure God's sanctuary. The, that's John was given a measuring reed. Go and measure God's sanctuary in the altar and count those who worship there. But exclude the courtyard outside the sanctuary. Don't measure it because it is given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. That is a direct reference to the Romans trampling Jerusalem for three and a half years. That same word trample is used in Revelation. It's used in Luke chapter 21 verse 24. So that's the time of the Gentile. Because in Revelation... The city is trampled for 42 months. I didn't translate that 42 months into years. 42 months is three and a half years. Jesus continues in verse 20 of Matthew 24. Pray that your escape may not be in winter on a Sabbath. Why? Well, because winter is a bad time to be running for your life, fleeing through mountain passes. That's obvious. That's not a good time to leave. Snow and floods you might occur you might encounter in the mountain passes. There's an interesting point here. It sounds like Jesus didn't really know the exact year, season, or day. If you want to get theological about it here, I think that's compatible with his divinely knowing all the other stuff he prophesied because, you know, human prophets don't understand everything they prophesy about, and Jesus was human as well as, as divine. And when you get into this, was Jesus acting from his human nature, his divine nature, you can get into interminable, interminable arguments, but I'm not going to worry about that. I just know that he said it's going to be bad if you escape in the winter. Note the problem for futurists. Escaping the winter is not such a big deal for modern people, although it could be. You run out of gas on a car, could be. Depends on where you are in this so-called alleged worldwide cataclysm called the Great Tribulation. Now, why did he say, pray that your escape may not be on a Sabbath? Well, there's a couple reasons. First of all, Jews were forbidden by rabbinic law to travel more than about a half a mile on the Sabbath, according to my NIV study Bible. And many of these Jews might still be scrupulous about that law. And so here they are having to flee Jerusalem and they get one half mile and they're not at Pella yet. They're stuck in the middle of the woods. So that might be a problem. Although in my opinion, I, I don't know what it's like to be a legalistic Jew, so I can't put myself in their shoes. But if I was running for my life, I would say the ox is in the ditch. I'm keeping on going past a half mile. Here's another suggestion by Adam Clark is that typically the Jews was, kept themselves indoors on a Sabbath day and they wouldn't allow anybody else in. The towns and cities were barred, and the towns and cities wouldn't allow anybody in. So there were no houses, no towns, no cities to embrace and to take in the fleeing Christian Jews leaving Jerusalem. They, they would have no hospitality, nobody to help them. This is not a good time to leave on a Sabbath. It would be better to be on another day. Either way, I think that explains that somewhat enigmatic expression, don't flee on a Sabbath. Matthew is the only synoptic writer who includes this detail, which is logical since he was a, he was a Jew writing to Jews. They would understand why it would be bad time to flee on a Sabbath. Now, that's the end of the great escape, we could call it. The end of the abomination of desolation, which 
triggers the fleeing from Jerusalem and the preservation of the early Christian Jewish church, which, of course, kept the church going so that it could then spread throughout the whole world so that you and I could believe in Jesus today. It was a huge event. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I've returned from my splice discussing Matthew 24, verses 15 through 20, and now I will splice in my discussion of Matthew 24, verses 21 through 26. Matthew talks about the Great Tribulation. Luke talks about the Days of Vengeance. It's the same thing. That splice begins now. Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. I'm doing a series of audios breaking down the Olivet Discourse into manageable chunks, and this particular chunk will be concerning the Great Tribulation. Now, of course, when we say the Great Tribulation, we're not talking about the moonshine fantasy idea of Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye, a Great Tribulation at the end of the world the last seven years, and the church will be raptured out before that, and so forth. That is a part of the eschatological poppycock that has been forced upon the Christian public for all too long now, over a century and a half since the rise of dispensationalism. This is talking about the Great Tribulation in the context of what Jesus was talking about in the first three verses of Matthew 24 when he says that the temple, the sign of his coming and the sign of the end of his age, and when will these things be, is when not one stone of the temple will be left on the other, which happened in AD 70. And so the great tribulation that lasted three and a half years that Jesus was talking about was between AD 66 and AD 70, the Jewish war, which you can read about, and Josephus, who actually participated in the events of the Jewish war, having been in the city for part of the of the siege. So Jesus says to the four disciples he's speaking to on the Mount of Olives, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, for at that time, that means at the time of the Jewish war, there will be great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world from now and never will again. Ah, but you say, how do you know the great tribulation is at the time of AD 70? Well, it's interesting, according to my NIV study Bible, Josephus describes the fall of Jerusalem in much the same language as this verse. In other words, his description of the Great Tribulation fits eighty seventy, And he was there. He saw it. Let's see some examples from Josephus. Quote, Daytime spent in the shedding of blood in the night in fear. Quote, Common to see cities field, filled with dead bodies. Escapees were caught by the Romans and crucified before the walls. Five hundred were crucified every day. The escapees from the city were disemboweled by the Romans looking for gold that the poor inhabitants had swallowed. The burial of these people consisted of throwing dead bodies into ravines. Fathers slaughtered whole families to keep the Romans from doing it. Mothers were killing and roasting and eating their own children. Parents were ripping food out of their mouths and swallowing the food. Thieves were sticking the swords up the anuses of people who wouldn't tell them where the food was, and so the thieves would stick their rear ends up stick their swords up the rear ends of these people. The land all over was filled with fire and blood. The Sea of Galilee was red from blood. Dead bodies everywhere were causing a horrible stench, littering the shores and the bloating in the sun, rotting and splitting apart. Folks, that's a great tribulation. So don't let your prophecy nut friend tell you that this is referring to the end when all hell is going to break loose and you better get ready. No. It's talking about AD 70. It's a great tribulation. Why? Because it was, well, it's optional. It could be, it was great in terms of number, the number of people involved, or is it great in terms of covenantal significance? Because losing Jerusalem and the temple was the greatest loss the Jews could ever have. Um, or it could be both. But anyway, it was, at any rate, it was a bad, bad time for the apostate Jews. Now, let's look at a phrase here. The tribulation hasn't taken place, a kind of, tribulation such as this hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world. 
hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world. Maybe you'll see a problem here. Problem whether you're a preterist or a futurist. There's a problem here. Doesn't matter because on the futurist view, it's true that the so-called future Great Tribulation with the Antichrist and so forth is bad, but it's not as bad as getting the whole world flooded under Noah. So the Great Tribulation is such as so bad that it's never happened before. Well, what about Noah's flood? Well, on the preterist view, the destruction of Jerusalem was bad. But is that as bad as getting the whole world flooded under Noah? So if you take that passage literally, as we Westerners tend to want to do, you contradict Jesus. And it doesn't matter whether you're a futurist or a preterist, you contradict Jesus. Well, what's the answer to that? The answer is very simple. Jesus is using typical Hebrew hyperbole. It wasn't meant to be taken literally. Now later, I'm going to go through some Old Testament passages to show you the same type of language could not have been taken literally. I'll do that in just a minute. But having said that, let's look at some passages, some catastrophes in the Old Testament which were pretty bad, but they weren't as bad as the burning up of Jerusalem in 8070. So that means that even though you can't take the hyperbole literally, you can take it in its essential meaning, which, which was this burning of Jerusalem was going to be unbelievably awful compared to most events in the Old Testament. Maybe not Noah's flood, but how about the burning of Sodom and Gomorrah? That was pretty bad, but the burning of Jerusalem was worse. How about the bondage of the Israelites in Egypt? That's pretty bad, but the burning of Jerusalem was worse. How about the Babylonian captivity? That was bad, but the burning of Jerusalem was worse. I mean, after the Babylonian captivity, it's true Jerusalem was burned, but Israel recovered from that. They end, and there was a return from the exile, and Prophets predicted the return, and they built their city again, and they got going again. But not after 8070. That was it until 1948, 2,000 years later. The Maccabean Revolt, which happened in the intertestamental period, that was bad. But the burning of Jerusalem was worse. All right, so that takes care of the, of the phrase, this great tribulation was of such a kind that it hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now. Now we've got to take, take note of another phrase, this sort of great tribulation will never happen again, Jesus says. The kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Well, again, it doesn't matter whether you're a futurist or a preterist, you got a problem. For example, if you're a futurist, the great tribulation is bad, but is it as, ba is it as bad as the whole world being burnt up at the end of the world? This is Second Peter 3.17 when it says the elements of the earth are reserved for fire. And of course, all good futurists believe that that's going to happen at the end. Well, how can the Great Tribulation be worse than that? Nothing could be worse than that. But Jesus said this Great Tribulation will be so great that nothing like that will ever happen again. So the futurists have got a problem. How about the preterist? Now, if you assume that the world has been burned up at the end literally in Second Peter 3, 7 through 10, where the elements of the, of the earth are reserved for fire, and not all preterists believe that, by the way, but many do, well, the Great Tribulation is bad, but it's not as bad as the whole world. When I say the Great Tribulation, the Preterist Great Tribulation is the burning of Jerusalem in 8070. That's bad, but it's not as bad as the whole world being burned up at the end. So how do you deal with that? Well, the answer is it's Hebrew hyperbole. Jesus is speaking in the language of an Old Testament prophet. Now, we're going to go through some Old Testament examples to show that kind of language, to show it was not meant to be taken literally. Now, I know that gripes dispensationalists who worship literalism we need to interpret the scriptures literarily, as people say, according to its genre. If it's history, a historical narrative, yes, you interpret it literally. But if it's apocalyptic, prophetic type language, you do not interpret it literally. You t t interpret it symbolically. And, and you also have to interpret figures of speech according to the 
customary usages of figures of speech. For example, if in English, if we say my love is like a red, red rose, you don't say that your love has petals. You interpret it in a natural way, which is metaphorical, symbolic. Now, before I go on to that, uh, let me say that on the preterist view, Second uh, Peter 3, 7 through 10, not all preterists believe that this is the physical burning up of the world. The elements that will burn up, that, that's the Greek word stoikos, I believe, which means elements, which always refers to the law. If you go back and do a search in your concordance, you will see that that Greek word means the law. And so what he's, according to these preterists, what Peter is talking about is the burning up of the law, which is the burning up of Jerusalem in eighty seventy. Now, it's not just preterists that believe this. The great Puritan theologian in the 16th century, Cambridge philosophy professor, excuse me, a Cambridge University professor, theologian, great theologian, John Owen, one of the great Puritan theologians, he believed the same thing. So it's not even true, not even necessarily true that the that, that there's going to be a burning up of the world at the end. There's a lot of problems with that view, by the way. I've done a, a video, Preterist Potpourri, in my Orthodox Preterist playlist on YouTube. You might be interested in that if you want to get deeper into the subject. But at any rate, what Jesus is talking about here is that the Great Tribulation is going to be great, not necessarily literally greater than anything that's going to ever happen in the future. Now, the reason I say that is because we go to Old Testament scriptures, which show that the similar kind of language cannot be interpreted literally. Here's Ezekiel 5, verse 9. Because of all your detestable practices, I will do to you what I have never done before and what I will never do again. That's exactly the same language that Jesus has used. But actually, God did do it again in eighty seventy. He did, he did it again in eighty seventy. So if you take, if a futurist takes this verse literally, that... Ezekiel, of course, is talking about the destruction, the first burning of Jerusalem, the first destruction of Jerusalem in 587-6 B.C. Well, let's take him literally. Let's ask the dispensationalists, do you take the scriptures literally? Of course, I believe in literalism. Okay, well then, was Ezekiel wrong? Because Ezekiel said, I'll never do this again. I'll never destroy, I'll never do to you again what I'm going to do to you in 586. So either Ezekiel is wrong or their vaunted literal hermeneutic is wrong. Take your pick. Exodus 11:6. Then there will be a great cry of anguish through all the land of Egypt, such as never was before or ever will be again. There's that same language, never before or never again. It's just, it just means like we say in the South, it's bodacious. It's going to be a bodacious tribulation. It doesn't mean literally that there's never going to be one as big as it, or never that there never has been one as big as this tribulation, or never again will be one as big. Joel 2, 2. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and dense overcast, like the dawn spreading over the mountains, a great and strong people appears, such as never existed in ages past, and never will again in all the generations to come. The same language. And, of course, that can't be interpreted literally, because the great tribulation, according to the futurist, at the end will be a cataclysm such as the world's never seen. But Joel says that whether it's the, it's not clear whether he's talking about Assyria or Babylonia coming in to wipe out the Jews, but he's saying that whatever it is, it's never going to happen again in the generations to come. But it did happen again, both in AD 70, if you're a preterist, and if you're a futurist, it will happen at the end of the world in the great in the so-called Great Tribulation. So Joel 2.2 cannot be taken literally. Daniel 9.12 he has carried out his words that he spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing on us so great a disaster that nothing like what has been done to Jerusalem has ever been done under all of heaven. That's half of the saying. Nothing in the past has ever been as great as this. And he, of course, is speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon in 587-6 B.C. But it was done to Jerusalem. Well, he didn't mention about the future, just said in the past. 
That, that verse just shows it's the same type of language, okay? Josephus uses the same type of language. This proves that this kind of hyperbole was idiomatic in the first century. Here's some examples from Josephus. The war which the Jews made with the Romans hath been the greatest of all those, not only that have been in our times, but in a manner of those that ever were heard of. Here's another quote from Josephus. The multitude of those that perish exceeded all the destructions which either man or God ever wrought upon the world. No other city ever suffered such things. No other generation was ever more fruitful in wickedness. So, that's the end of that story. Now, let's see what time we're talking about. Matthew, Jesus here in Matthew 24:21 mentions time. He says, for at that time there will be great tribulation. Of course, that's the big issue between the preterists and the futurists is what time are we talking about? Well, let's assume the preterist view, since it's the correct view, at least according to me, it's the correct view, and I control the microphone, Luke 21:22, because these are days of vengeance to fulfill all the things that are written. Now, notice that its wrath fell on that generation of Jews who killed Jesus. Jesus constantly said in Matthew 23, 8, woe unto on this generation, this generation. And he was talking about the Jewish leaders who killed Jesus. He was not pronouncing judgment on all Jews for all time. And so many people misinterpreted that verse. It's led to all kinds of anti-Semitism. In fact, the word, when the Jews cried out at his crucifixion, may his blood be on us and our descendants. It's not descendants. It's children, which is a different Greek word. It doesn't mean grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren all, all the way through the Middle Ages, all the way to the modern era. No, it just means that one generation of children, which, of course, died out right about the time of 870 or so. So that's where the wrath fell on the Jews and their children on that generation. Let's go to Matthew 24, verse 22. Jesus continues, unless those days, the days of the great tribulation when, uh, of the Jewish war, 8066 to 8070, three and a half years, unless those days were limited, no one would survive. But those days will be limited because of the elect. Well, now, first of all, this is an aside. The elect has got to refer to Christians. That's what the word always refers to. It doesn't refer to unregenerate Jews. However, if you're a pre-trib dispensationalist, you believe that the Jews were, uh, that, excuse me, the church is raptured out of the world before the Great Tribulation, leaving only Tribulation Jews on the planet. And these are the ones going through the Great Tribulation. And now Jesus says the days of the Great Tribulation will be limited because of the elect. Elect who? The elect Christians? Can't be. They're in heaven. They've been raptured out. So it has to be the elect Jews. The, ver the word never refers to elect Jews. So there's one big problem for the pre-tribbers. Now, no one would survive. Actually, everyone did survive because of the, when Jesus warned them. When you see the abomination of desolation, when you see the army surrounding Jerusalem, the armies that cause desolation, flee. Hopefully it's not on the Sabbath, it's not on the winter, but flee. And they did. They, the chosen ones, the real believers, the elect, who were at, they left Jerusalem and went to Pella and other places around Pella, across the Jordan River in the mountains over there on the east side of the Jordan. Now... When it says no one would survive, it means no one in Jerusalem would survive. It doesn't mean no one referring to everybody in the world, like a nuclear holocaust. Unless those days were limited, no one survived because the nuclear holocaust would wipe out the whole planet. That's apocalyptic sci-fi dispensationalist Tim LaHaye, Hal Lindsey, moonshine. Now, there is a, uh, perhaps a small ambiguity as to who this no one is said no one would survive. I assumed it was no one in Jerusalem. However, you could make the argument that the survivors who are being referred to is not only those 
Christians who survived by escaping to Pella, but it could be the Jews who were left after AD 70. In other words, unless those days were limited of the Jewish war, no Jew after AD 70 would survive. Well, the problem with that is right after that, Jesus says, but those days will be limited because of the elect, and the Jews that survived after AD 70 were not of the elect, so the context doesn't seem to indicate surviving Jews. However, it could refer to born-again children of surviving Jews, because you would assume some of those would get converted later on, but they wouldn't survive, physically survive, if the Roman, the Jewish war kept them going, 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 and the Romans, Romans wiped out everybody, no body would survive. But the days were limited because the war ended after Jerusalem fell. Now here's a, a little problem I need to deal with. The limitation of this war was to protect the elect. And the elect, of course, refers to Christians and not to Jews. But the problem is, the elect is in Pella. The war could not, the war have kept on going. And the Jews survived, excuse me, the, the elect, the Christian, the Christian Jews, the elect survived in Pella as the war went on. Well, no. Not really, because if the war kept going, it would have spread through Palestine. The Romans would have eventually gotten to Pella and wiped out the Christian Jews too. And if the elect includes the children of unbelieving Jews who get converted, some of those would be saved, but they would be wiped out if the war continued. So that's not an objection to the Preterist view, because even though the Christians in Pella managed to outlast the siege for three and a half years, if that war had kept on going, the Romans would have gotten them eventually. No one would have survived, but they did survive. They survived in Pella. Matthew 24, verses 23 to, through 25. If anyone tells you then, look, here is the Messiah, or over here, do not believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note, I have told you in advance. And of course, this is what all this is, is advance warning for the disciples to help them survive this Holocaust, this disaster that was going to occur, he wanted the church to keep going. So he's warning them to get ready. And one of the warnings is don't be seduced by false messiahs and false prophets. Now I've already mentioned false messiahs, talking about verse 5 where Jesus mentioned it earlier. And verse 11 he mentioned false prophets. And I gave you a lot of false messiahs and a lot of false prophets that showed up around this 80-30-80-70 period. I'm going to give you here just a skinny version of that. Here is a quote from John Gill. There were false abounded, uh, messiahs abounding at this time, both before the siege and after the siege of Jerusalem. Let's look at before the siege. Quote from John Gill. There were such that sprung up and pretended to be messiahs and deliverers of them from the Roman power and had their several abettors, one saying he was in such place and another that he was in such a place and so spirited up the people not to fly nor to deliver up the city. These false messiahs who were saying, don't surrender to the Romans, the messianic kingdom's just around the corner. Why would you want to ruin that by surrendering it to those nasty pagan Romans? After the siege, it still wasn't over. One and another set up for the Messiah, says Gil. Very quickly, after, after the destruction of Jerusalem, one Jonathan, a very wicked man, led many into the desert of Cyrene, that's northern Africa, promising to show them signs and wonders, and was overthrown by Catilius, the Roman governor. And after that, in the times of Adrian, Hadrian, the famous Barokhob, I think he means Bar Kokhba there, the famous Bar Kokhba set up for the Messiah and was encouraged by Rabbi Akiba and a multitude of Jews. So, there were false messiahs everywhere. And like I said, in, in Matthew 24b, that audio, I've got a ton of other ones too, which I won't go over again here. Remember, the idea of a military political figure to, to rescue the Jews from the Romans was very strong in Jesus' day, as everybody knows. And those days were a time of peace when they were expecting this military political figure to come. Can you imagine 
when there's times of war, the Jewish war, eighty sixty six through 70, can you imagine during that time how many messianic expectations would arise? But they say, hot dog, now's the wars here. We're going to wipe out the Romans. And Jesus had to warn the disciples against this. Now, he said these false messiahs and uh, false prophets will perform great signs and wonders. Now, there's a question about what kind of false signs and wonders were being done. Option A is they were false miracles, which are actually only illusions, magicians' tricks, sleight of hand, or they were true miracles by the power of Satan. And it's interesting, if you read commentators over the last 2,000 years, they mostly tend to say that they were false miracles, only illusions. And I don't doubt that, that false messiahs could do that. There's always that. But I also don't doubt that the devil can't do miracles, too. The devil can do miracles. All you have to do is read a little bit of occult literature. I wouldn't suggest you do that, but I did it one time. Kind of curious about the kingdom of darkness, and there's no question. Those guys are doing miracles. This is interesting. It's cessationists constantly deny that Christians can do miracles today or that God does miracles today. But I wonder what they say about the devil. They say, well, it might be the devil doing the miracle. You've got to be careful. Well, are they admitting that the devil can do miracles? I agree that the devil can do miracles, and I agree you have to distinguish, you have to discern but I don't know what cessationists say. Do they believe in complete cessation that the devil can't do miracles? Well, I believe the devil can do miracles, and you have to be careful. Careful. But at any rate, let's look at the two options. Illusions, sleight of hand, fake miracles, or true miracles by the power of Satan. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. But as it was too little purpose for a man to take upon him the character of the Christ without miracles to avouch his divine mission, so it was the common artifice of these impostors to show signs and wonders, the very words used by Christ in this prophecy and by Josephus in his history. Josephus also mentioned signs and wonders of false prophets, and Josephus, as you know, was not a Christian. Among these false messiahs, Simon Magus and Josephus mentioned before, and Barclacob, who St. Jerome says pretended to vomit flames. And it is certain these and some others were so dexterous in imitating miraculous works that they deceived many. And here's another, that was that quote from Adam Clark. Here's another quote from Adam Clark. How abundant the Jews were in magic, divination, sorcery, incantation, etc. Well, I don't believe that. I believe that magic and divination and sorcery, that's true miracles, not fake miracles. Here's another quote advocating false miracles. This is from Brian Shortley, quoted by D.D. Warren. Shortley is a internet theological phenom, strong reform guy who takes no prisoners in his theology. Here's what he says about this. I think he's a pre orthodox preterist. I'm not sure. But anyway, here's what he says. Quote, pyrotechnic feats involving fire and the simulation of lightning are also recorded as part of pagan religious practices. Hippolytus recorded a magician creating a fiery demon that shot through the air and amazed the crowds. He also, along with Suetonius, recorded the imitation of thunder. In the ancient world, thunder and lightning were powerfully associated with the gods, specifically Jupiter, and to appropriate that imagery was to appropriate divinity. Plutarch noted such imitation in art and auditory effects. Julius Pollux actually reported a device to simulate lightning to be used in conjunction with the thunder effect. Heron of Alexander mentions a similar device used in theater and attributed to be used by Gaius Caesar. 
Now, for our subject, was it possible that Nero used such trickery and devices? Certainly, he was a vain and lavish man who indulged in extravagant displays. Suetonius recorded that Nero had a revolving room or ceiling to mimic the revolution of the heavens across the sky. If such technological marvels were available, and knowing Nero's boldness in claiming divinity before his death, it would not at all be unusual to have such means used for his self-glorification. All right, so yeah, there's no question that false signs and wonders could be done. There's no question that the devil can do false signs and wonders, and these people were in league with the devil. So I, my opinion is both fake and true devilish signs and wonders were done by these false prophets and false messiahs right at the time of the great tribulation the fall of jerusalem eighty sixty six through eighty seventy now it says these great signs and wonders could lead astray if possible even the elect now this is a kind of an enigmatic phrase you can take it two ways first it's absolutely impossible to lead the astray elect well first of all before we get into that it says astray. It doesn't mean astray in the final perdition. That would contradict the very meaning of the elect, because elect means chosen. It means you're going to be saved. Once saved, always saved. Excuse me, Arminians. Just scratch that from your hearing. But basically, if you're elect, you're going to be born again. You're going to make it into the kingdom. So it's talking about being astray, not into final perdition, but it means astray into believing a false messiah. And then, of course, you, the person who is seduced by a false messiah is going to find himself Later on, he's going to wake up to a sad reality that he's been seduced and, and deceived. So that's that's what we're talking about. If it is it possible to lead the elect into uh, astray into following a false messiah? Now, is that possible? Well, if you say it's absolutely impossible, well, the problem with that is Christians can be deceived. And in fact, if it was impossible for them to be deceived, why was Jesus warning the uh, disciples about being deceived? If it was, if it was impossible to be deceived, so I, I, that can't be it. I think what. What the verse is saying is the false messiahs thought it would be possible to deceive the elect, but it wasn't possible because Jesus is going to stop that, going to stop that um, deception from taking place. In other words, the messiahs are going to try. If they can do it, if they can do it, if they can do it, if they can get away with it, they're going to deceive even the elect. They're going to try it. In their minds, they, they're going to think, if, it's po if we can get these Christians, we're going to get them, if it's possible. But Jesus has more confidence than that. that they're, he thinks that they're not going to be deceived. Of course, I must say that it is it is possible to deceive Christians into following a false messiah. I mean, look, look at Joel Osteen, Andy Stanley. I mean, you know, we've got all kinds of nut jobs running around in the Church of Christ today, and people are following them. So, I mean, I have, I have no illusions about the possibility that Christians might be deceived. But I think here that Jesus is not talking about that. He's think, He's saying that the false messiahs and false prophets are thinking, yeah, if we can get away with this, I think we're going to receive the elect. It could go either way. It's not a major point, but I thought I'd bring it up. And then Jesus says, take note, I've told you in advance. That means in advance of the Jewish war. In other words, I'm getting you ready, guys, for the trouble that's coming. All right, let me give you another skinny example, skinny version of the examples of false prophets. Josephus, quote, a false prophet was the occasion of these people's destruction who had made a public proclamation in the city that very day that God commanded them to get upon the temple and that there, there they should receive miraculous signs of their deliverance. Now there was then a great number of false prophets suborned by the tyrants to impose upon the people, false prophets who were also making money, who denounced this to them that they should wait for deliverance from God. Perhaps that quote might be a typo. They might have announced this to them that they should wait for deliverance from God. 
Another quote from Josephus, The importance and accuracy of Jesus' prophetic warning can be seen by observing Josephus' account of the fall of Jerusalem. He writes, A false prophet was the occasion of these people's destruction, who had made a public proclamation in the city that very day that God commanded them to get upon the temple that they should receive miraculous signs of their deliverance. Now there was then a great number of false prophets suborned by the tyrants to impose upon the people who announced this to them that they should wait for deliverance from God. That's similar to the quote I just read. Josephus continues, Like the false prophets of old who gave the people a false sense of security during the Babylonian invasion, the various false prophets of the Great Tribulation caused incredible misery. Actually, that's not Josephus. That was D.D. Warren quoting Brian Schwartley, who was quoting Josephus. Well, it was Josephus, but it was Josephus at three times removed. But you get, this, you get the idea here. Josephus is talking about false prophets who showed up during the Jewish war. Let me give you another quote. This is a guy, a quote from Horsley, a scholar named Horsley, who wrote a book called Bandits, Prophets, and Messiahs, Richard A. Horsley, 1999, Trinity Press International. The Action Prophets, the action prophets led movements of peasants in active anticipation of divine acts of deliverance. The hostile Josephus suggests that there may have been several such peasant movements around the mid-first century seat. AD, common era AD, he means. In his general comments, we can discern some of the principal characteristics of these movements. Imposters and demagogues, under the guise of divine inspiration, provoked revolutionary actions and impelled the masses to act like madmen. They led them out into the wilderness so that their God would show them signs of imminent liberation. For they said that they would display unmistakable signs and wonders done according to God's plan. Large numbers of people, inspired and convinced of the imminence of God's action, abandoned their work, homes, and villages to follow their charismatic leaders out into the wilderness. They knew from the sacred traditions that it was in the wilderness that God had shown signs and wonders of redemption in earlier times, and that the wilderness was the place of purification, preparation, and renewal. So there you have it. That's plenty of support for the idea that false prophets and messiahs showed up everywhere around the time of the Jewish war. Jesus continues in verse 26. He continues to warn the disciples, the apostles of these false prophets and false messiahs. So if they tell you, Jesus says in verse 26, so if they tell you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Now, why would somebody claim that a false prophet or a false messiah was in the wilderness? Because the wilderness is considered a place of spiritual purity. You recall John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness, free from the temptations of the world. Now here's some examples of false messiahs. Again, I give a lot more in an earlier video. I'll just give you a couple here real quickly. Simon the son of Georos. This is an Adam Clark. He collected thousands in the mountainous parts of Judea during the siege. So during the siege of Jerusalem outside in the wilderness around Judea, there's a false messiah getting ready to take over the city. I don't know how he was planning on doing it, but he was planning on doing it despite the presence of the Romans there. And then after the destruction of the city, you've got Jonathan the Weaver. This is from Adam Clark quoting Josephus. One Jonathan, a weaver, persuaded a number to follow him to the desert, but he was taken and burnt alive by Vespasian, never to weave again. Now why would people start claiming that false messiahs were in the inner rooms? Jesus said, look, if somebody says to you, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. Why would somebody say a messiah is in, in, in the inner room? Well, here's a speculation from John Gill, who says that Jesus was referring to one of the secret fortified rooms of the temple. The leaders of the zealots were in such a place in the temple. Clark cites Josephus in the Jewish war to prove that. John and Eliezer, the head of the zealots, they 
hid themselves out in one of the fortified rooms of the temple. Well, that could be. And they could be claiming to be false messiahs. Or it could be in some other private room in Jerusalem, hiding for fear of the Romans. It doesn't really matter. But Jesus' point is, look, a true messiah is not going to hide himself in a room, do his false signs and prophets just to a few people. Look at me. Well, Jesus went right down there in the belly of the rabbinic beast, went down to Jerusalem, exposed himself to danger, taught publicly. He was a true messiah. He was not a cowardly, false messiah hiding in the inner room. Ah, but somebody might object. Well, if these false messiahs would be hiding in an inner room, how are they going around to perform signs, if possible, to deceive the very elect, gathering crowds around them in order to declare their messiahship in Jerusalem? Well, you know, some of these false messiahs were in the wilderness, and that wasn't public. That was out there in the boondocks. But they were still doing signs, deceiving people because the people would follow them out into the wilderness. And likewise, also, a false prophet could do a false sign in an inner room with people gathered around and gathering people hiding from the government authorities like Jesus didn't do because Jesus was more courageous than that. All right, let's look at who these they is that Jesus is saying people say to you to go into the wilderness or go into an inner room. Here's a quote from... Uh, here's a quote from Adam Clark, who is quoting Josephus. Josephus says that many impostors and cheats persuaded the people to follow them to the desert, promising to show them signs and wonders done by the providence of God is well attested. An Egyptian false prophet, mentioned by Josephus in, in his antiquities, led out into the desert 4,000 men who were murderers, but these were all taken or destroyed by Felix, that's the Roman guy, Roman commander, after promised salvation to the people if they would follow him to the desert, after he promised salvation to the people, if they would follow him to the desert, destroyed by Festus. Acts 21.38 refers to this. Aren't you the Egyptian, talking to Paul, aren't you the Egyptian who raised a rebellion some time ago and led 4,000 assassins into the wilderness? I think that was Felix that said that. I always get Felix and Festus mixed up. But at any rate, that's one example that's actually recorded in Scripture of a false messiah. Adam Clark quotes Josephus again. Josephus mentions a false prophet in the Jewish war who declared to be the people in the city, who declared to the people in the city that God commanded them to go up into the temple and there they should receive the signs of deliverance. A multitude of men, women, and children went up accordingly. But instead of deliverance, the place was set on fire by the Romans and 6,000 perished miserably in the flames or in attempting to escape them. That's plenty of evidence, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus was talking about the great tribulation with its false prophets and false messiahs. He was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, he was not talking about a great tribulation at the end of the planet. So please file your, or actually take your Tim LaHaye, Hal Lindsey books and burn them because they're worthless. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I've returned from my splice of Matthew 24 verses 21 through 26 discussing the great tribulation. And so we have now finished the discussion in Luke chapter 21 verses 20 through 24 where Luke mentions the abomination of desolation and the great escape to Pella, as well as the days of vengeance, which is the same thing as the great tribulation. Next audio, we will talk about Jesus coming on the clouds, accompanied by all those signs in heaven. Hope you enjoyed this audio, and I hope you'll tune in for the next one. <laughs>